This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. But really, this is something a bit different or slightly different from our usual podcast. Uh, Last month, Zach Caldwell of Caldwell Sports and Noah Hoffman, a spirited and keen former national ski team member, had a conversation about Hoffman's involvement in anti-doping. They cover lots of ground here. And if you are new to the latest in anti-doping and want to learn more about things like the Rodchenkov Act and how USADA is trying to reform the international anti-doping movement, this is a really good place to start. The audio was ripped from Caldwell Sports' YouTube channel with permission. We simply wanted more people to hear this important conversation. We'll link to the video on the website if you'd rather watch these two chat. And a short plug for Caldwell Sport, just because we wanna thank them for their content. They are core Vermonters who specialize in hand-selected skis and stone grinding. You can find them at caldwellsports.com. Do you wanna introduce yourself, Noah? Probably none of the people that are gonna see this will remember you. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a long time. Uh, I was one of your athletes. Uh, I uh, grew up in Colorado and skied on the national team for nine years, I believe, and competed in four world championships and two Olympics and uh, retired after the 2018 games. Uh, Well, yeah, a couple world cups after that as well, but got to kind of script my retirement uh, in a way that I think most athletes don't and um, kind of feel really good about the way my athletic career ended. And now I'm in school uh, at Brown University um, halfway through. How's that going so far? It's been good. I finally declared a major. Oh, you uh, did? I didn't realize. <laughs> I did. What are uh, you? I did, uh, applied mathematics and economics. Uh, it's one one major uh, that combines both those subjects. Um, I'd mathematics sounds hard. Uh, it's interesting because like you need a basic level of math to meet those requirements, but like I, I'm not super interested in the theoretical math. That stuff to me is extremely difficult, and like proofs and stuff like that. But the basic level of math that you need to be able to like uh, kind of do high level economics is what I want to attain. Sure. That sounds good. So models. Yes. Although I'm really interested in it to kind of have background information. I'm still interested in like economics as a tool of policy and not economics for theory. Right. So you're moving toward a future as sort of a policy wonk and less of a politician. I'm not sure about that, actually. So the other thing I've taken at school is a bunch of writing classes and communications classes. Oh, really? Um, And so I'm interested in, like, economic journalism also or um, kind of policy communications uh, centered on economic issues. Yep. Um, I I mean, this this is all, like, different ways of getting at issues of equity that I've kind of been interested in pursuing for a long time. Well, and this is also precisely what I promised you we weren't going to like 
focus on too much here. It's like, what, what are you going to do with your life? Um, the reason that I wanted to record this is that you called me on my birthday. Thank you. Um, <laughs> didn't know it was your birthday in the middle of a really long bike ride while I was trying to eat a huge burrito. And we had a, the seeds of a really interesting conversation around a lot of the work that you've been doing on athlete advocacy and anti-doping. And I thought it would be really interesting for us to um, record just a little bit on what you've been working on outside of your schoolwork, because you're very, very active in a couple different areas here. Yeah. So this work kind of fell into my lap. I, I didn't, as you know, I didn't really intend on staying involved in the sports world very, uh, very deliberately. Um, I was feeling like the sports world was a, a privileged white bubble, especially the, the cross-country skiing world or the skiing world in general in the U.S. Mm-hmm. as a privileged white bubble and that I wanted to work on issues of equity and the, the ski world was not a very good place to do that. Um, but then at the at Olympic processing in Seoul in 2018, uh, I swung by the USADA booth and there was a woman there from USADA whose purpose was to kind of give athletes an overview of what the anti-doping experience was going to be like at the games and make sure that whereabouts were up to date and that basically no American athlete was going to be surprised by the anti-doping requirements of the games. And I was chatting with her in, um, you know, coming from a skiing, cross-country skiing background, we have a lot of uh, anti-doping issues in the sport and I was relatively well aware of them and, and so could carry on a conversation with her. And I guess that was a unique uh showing any interest was unique amongst athletes in anti-doping as they're going through Olympic processing. So she asked if I could, uh, if she could contact me after the game, see if I want to get involved more. And I said, sure, no problem. So she did. She reached out to me after the games and I said, that's all well and good. I'd love to be involved, but I'm actually retiring. So I probably can't be involved. And she said, Oh, as a matter of fact, um, if you're retiring, we're starting a new program where we're trying to transition some of the anti-doping education in this country to former athletes. Uh, You can't do it as a current athlete, but as a former athlete, um, we would love to have you involved in this new program uh, called the Athlete Presenter Program, where we believe that former athletes can relate better to current athletes um, or can bring a perspective of athletes to our education programs. Um, We also have a big burden on our staff because there's we try to do education to 2,600 uh, registered testing pool athletes and it's, it's too much for us to handle. So we need more help and using former athletes is a great way to do that. So she asked if I wanted to be involved and the pay was really good. <laughs> um, they, they pay on a per day basis and, uh, and I, that's not the only reason that I did it, but I, I was also, I, I, I am, passionate about anti-doping and I do feel like I felt like at the time and I feel that way even more that USADA is kind of leading the way globally in good practice for anti-doping organizations. Can you give examples about that? Because I, you know, I'm aware of that having, well, I don't know that I'm aware of that. I think I'm favorably impressed by Travis Tiger basically for going after Lance 
and for, for being a real thorn in the side of American cheaters, which is a, uh, not a universal thing around the world with uh, national anti, anti-doping bodies. No, and what I've come to learn is that, I mean, not only has Travis and USADA under his leadership been a thorn in the side of, of, anti, of, doping, of doping athletes in this country, he's been a huge thorn in the side of the global anti-doping system. Uh, I mean, he has been WADA's biggest critic uh, because there are serious issues at WADA with a lack of independence and lack of... Uh, actually living up to their mandate and actually putting athletes' interests first. How does the structure um, work globally? USADA re- is responsible to U.S. Congress, right? Uh, USADA is actually primarily responsible to WADA. Okay. Um, there, so uh, WADA's funding comes uh, half from a coalition of governments who through an international treaty, um, fund half of WADA's budget. And then matching that contribution is the IOC, International Olympic Committee. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with independence at WADA, and we'll get into this more, is that the IOC, with half their funding, gets half the seats at the governance table and therefore has half the control of WADA. And because the, the government block does not, or the government do not vote as a block, as you can imagine, the U.S. and and Russia have very in different interests when it comes to anti-doping. Right. The IOC effectively has control. It's not like the governments are acting as a counterbalance to the IOC. Right, right, right. Um, and then under, under WADA is the national anti-doping agencies, um, of which USADA is one. They're called NATOs. And there is, the NATOs are, are relatively independent from WADA, and they have their own, uh, their own coalition where they're able to actually pressure WADA to do this certain things, but they're all signatories to the World Anti-Doping Code, um, and they all have to follow the, the structure that is put in place by WADA. And that was all part of this global treaty that governments came together with the IOC to initiate to harmonize the anti-doping rules worldwide, which is a really important thing that the rules are harmonized across countries. Otherwise, you'd be like sports, uh, sorry, like equestrian events in this country where every state has their own anti-doping rules for the equine athletes, for the horses. Uh, And then it's just, it's just a total mess. And there's been pushes to harmonize those rules recently also, and which is another bill that's pending in Congress to harmonize equine sports. But so what essentially the, what WADA does that for global sport, which is a good thing. The problem is that WADA is not doesn't have independence from the IOC or from the sporting movement. And there's a huge financial interest for the IOC and these international sport governing bodies to, uh, to really, um, you know, not let doping be publicly seen as a big problem, whether it actually is or not. And so there's an interest in trying to get issues to go away any way that they can, or to push things under the rug, to move on, to not, punish entire countries when they have institutional doping because there's a huge amount of revenue for sport in those countries that's going to be lost if you ban them from the Olympic Games or right. or take away their right to compete in international sport. So that's where, as, as Travis likes to say publicly, it's like a fox guarding the hen house problem where uh, there's just a huge conflict of interest. 
But so uh, USADA's funding, it is up to each country to fund their own national anti-doping organization. Um, USADA's funding, uh, at least a couple of years ago, 10 million of it, it's a, a $14 million a year organization, plus or minus, mm -hmm. and 10 million came from the US Olympic Committee, US Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Uh, they wonderfully changed their name a year or two ago. So it's USOPC. Um, it's now USOPC. When you hear that, USOPC. that means USOC. Yes, exactly. Yep. Uh, but that's a, that's a really good change that uh, Paralympic athletes are now included in the title. of your Were they, ag it, I mean, it's a typical it's change. Not, it's not a change of structure. in the organization, right? They've always been in the organization. It's just, it's just, an, it's just now that we're actually recognizing that. Acknowledging it, right. Yeah. Um, and then 4 million uh, a year of USADA's budget comes from U.S. Congress. So that's where U.S. Congress does have some oversight over USADA. Okay. And, and they're, I think they're, you know, designated as the official anti-doping organization of this country. Okay. Um, uh, so that's, that's a good overview and it's a good explanation of how Travis's leadership has kind of put USADA into a leadership position globally. Mm -hmm. Um, they seem like definitely one of the more aggressive and active what did you call the national anti-doping agencies? Uh, NADO, yeah, national anti-doping agency. National oh. anti-doping organization, NADO. Organization. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, what's the, one of the things that you mentioned was this uh, Rachenko Act. How does that relate to everything that's going on? Yeah, so, I mean, I should mention that uh, through this work at USADA, so the work at USADA, the paid work at USADA is very specific. It's, it's educating athletes okay. on their rights and responsibilities in anti-doping. Yeah. Um, but through that work, I've been introduced to uh, people who are seeking to change the system, um, the anti-doping system in this country and globally. Um, and one of the biggest connections that was made, uh, and actually uh, Heather McPhee Watanabe, who was a multi-time Olympian in mogul skiing, a good friend of mine, uh, she was actually asked to be the American representative on this new organization that was starting called Global Athlete. And she's got a young family and a uh, career in finance and didn't have time for that role. And so she recommended uh, me to take that position. And uh, because I'm lucky to have a bunch of time right now, given that I'm in school full time and not working, uh, I was able to to joined this group called Global Athlete, and it was started by this guy by the name of Rob Keeler, who was the former director general uh, at WADA. And he resigned in the early fall of 2018 uh, over WADA's handling of the Russian state-sponsored doping scandal. Okay. Uh, he felt like athletes' interests weren't being put first and that uh, the organization was uh, not living up to its responsibilities and that he couldn't be part of it. So uh, he was uh, contractually obligated to um, basically not do any work in anti-doping once he left WADA for six months. As soon as that ended, uh, he founded an organization called Global Athlete, which is the organization that I'm part of. And our goal at Global Athlete is to elevate the athlete voice world in worldwide sports governance. Uh, so it's not, it's not only focused on anti-doping, it's really on... No, uh, it's, it's all issues, yeah. Sure. Um, so so um, I want to be really clear that like the, 
when, when we start talking about the Ron Chankov Act, we start talking about IOC Rule 50 and Rule 40, um, that these are, I'm not getting paid to do this work. This is, okay. this is work I'm doing because I'm passionate about. The separate paid work from is these other stuff. Yep. separate from these other stuff. I, I, you know, it's, it's tied in because uh, I'm lucky now to have like tons of resources and be really educated about how the system works. Um, but I'm, I'm only getting paid when I'm presenting to athletes on their current rights responsibilities under the world anti-doping code. Um, so this is not paid work. I think that's an important distinction. Um, so the Rodchenkov Act is uh, a little bit actually separate from Global Athlete as well, in that I kind of just got, uh, got introduced to this bill through USADA and through Global Athlete, but then kind of took it on because it's an American bill and an American issue and Global Athlete is much more focused on international issues. Um, I kind of took this on as my project to really educate athletes about what this bill is going to do and why it's important that we as an athlete community support this bill and where the bill is and help this bill get through Congress. And to do that, I've been trying to, uh, trying to encourage and support athletes in speaking up in support of this bill, which I did. Um, I published uh, a letter with Jesse um, in the Minneapolis Star Tribune last spring uh, supporting this bill. I helped um, Brittany Reese, a track and field star, publish a letter. I worked with Molly Huddle, an Olympic runner, to publish a letter of support. Um, so I've been, I published my own in the Salt Lake Tribune, really working to show athlete support for this bill, encourage athletes to speak up on behalf of the bill. So describe the bill. What is this bill? So yeah, the bill is called the Rodchenkov Anti-Doping Act of 2018. Uh, it is going to criminalize international doping conspiracies. So what that does not do is criminalize doping for athletes. Um, this is deliberate. Uh, there is a system in place to punish athletes who dope, um, athletes, individual doping athletes who are doing so on their own accord, like many of the athletes that we saw busted in, in Austria during the 2019 World Championships were working in, more or less individually. They were part of systems that are, that are a problem and, and there are some administrators that were involved that could potentially be liable under this bill, but the athletes themselves would not be. So this bill basically allows federal law enforcement to get involved in international doping conspiracies like the state-sponsored doping in Russia. Um, for the, at the moment, no doping conspiracy, doping fraud uh, is illegal. And so there's no avenue for, unless there's uh, money laundering happening at the same time or any sort of other corruption, there's no avenue for federal law enforcement to be involved, which means that there's no subpoena power. Um, there's, there's just, you're lacking the resources of federal law enforcement. And the biggest thing that I've been focused on is like, the Russian state is orchestrating this doping and WADA or USADA or any organization that's actually interested in clean sport does not have the resources to counter the Russian state. I mean, the U.S. government hardly does, as we see in, you know, the lack of ability to counter Russian election meddling and um, different areas of Russian corruption. And so how can you expect an organization that's got no real... Uh, you know, no real authority outside of the sports world to counter the Russian state. Um, so we need Russia's, we need 
the U.S. government's involvement to counter state-sponsored doping. But even leaving aside something of the scale of Russian state-sponsored doping, which is you know clearly an overwhelming concern in the sports world, when you look at the successes of anti-doping efforts or the the cases that have been exposed for over a decade, it seems like the headline-grabbing cases and the ones that have exposed the biggest networks and the most athletes are generated through law enforcement efforts, not through anti-doping efforts. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean. Prime example is the scandal at the World Championships in Austria 2019. Right. That came through the, the efforts of Austrian and German law enforcement. Even U.S. Postal Service, which you mentioned, the avenue there for federal law enforcement was that it was the U.S. Postal Service, and therefore it was right. defrauding a, a government agency. That's why law enforcement was involved in that scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I'm trying to think of other examples. But, yeah, federal law enforcement has been involved. And this is – so WADA and – the IOC have been railing against the Rodchenkov Act, and they have been just throwing everything they can to stop this bill in its tracks, um, which to me uh, highlights their lack of lack of investment in clean athletes. Is this yeah. is this because they feel it presents the opportunity for an overreach and basically someone stepping on their turf, or is this because they feel that it will expose? Uh, essentially their inaction in cases where they may in fact be protecting established practices. So their articulated reason is they're, they're scared of overreach. So they, the bill has extraterritorial jurisdiction written into it, which it has to, to be able to counter uh, international doping conspiracies. And it's no different from the way that other U S law has extraterritorial jurisdiction written into it. In particular, the law that was used to uh, charge FIFA officials during the FIFA corruption scandal in 2016, I believe it was, um, which really helped clean up the sport of soccer and was kind of a huge step forward in anti-corruption efforts in sport. That was using extraterritorial jurisdiction of U.S. law. This law would be no different than that. But right. that is why the IOC and WADA have pushed so hard against it, is they say that this is going to uh, basically unharmonize, undo the harmonization of anti-doping rules worldwide because you're going to get countries creating these extraterritorial laws all over the place that are going to make a hodgepodge of rules and criminal liability in different countries. The reality is that the bill is written to explicitly say that the rules are the, the rules that they're enforcing are the world anti-doping code. The harmonization that's happening from WADA right. is is providing the, the bill is providing the code um, for U.S. law. And so this idea that we are undermining this harmonization it just has no basis in reality. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, are you getting traction? I mean, what are people? How? What's the response when you reach out to athletes? The response has been really good. It helps that like every sports organization in this country has supported this bill, including the USOPC, which uh, was a hard fight to win because they're so connected with the IOC, but they did eventually come out and support certainly the USOPC's athletes committee, which has also been gaining independence and gaining strength over the last couple of years. They've come out in full throated, full throated endorsement of this bill. Um, And then 29 national governing bodies, so including the U.S. Ski and Snowboard, uh, USA Swimming, USA Track and Field, uh, all the big ones have come out in support of this bill. Um, 
of course, USADA is a huge pusher of this bill. They've supported it. And so when all of those American organizations that athletes in this country trust and have feel like have their best interest at heart, when they come out and support, then it's really easy to get athletes on board as well. Mm-hmm. I'll note that one other big uh, point that the IOC has been using to fight against this bill is that the bill only covers signatories to the WADA code, which means it does not cover American professional sports and it does not cover NCAA sports. And the IOC is basically saying like, clean up your own house before you worry about the world stage, which is, uh, is just a way to kind of throw sand in the wheels of this process. Uh, there's no, the, those sports actually have nothing to do with WADA. They've never been signatories of the code. Um, the professional soccer leagues in Europe are also not signatories of the code. So there's not just American sports that are not covered. And the reason that American professional sports are not signatories to the WADA code is that their anti-doping policies are subject to collective marketing which is something that I have actually, I think is a necessary future of Olympic anti-doping rules also. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the athletes have so much more power. And also because of that, they have so much more buy-in to the anti-doping system in the American professional sports. When athletes are, when athletes test positive, the union provides representation to those athletes to mount a defense, but the outcome of those processes is generally accepted by both athletes and the administrators of sport because it's a, there's, a, there's a process that's been bought into, it's been collectively bargained, there's a fair adjudication process, there's representation, mandatory representation for athletes. And so the IOC and WADA saying that, oh, you know, this bill doesn't cover professional sports, Therefore, it should, you know, therefore, it's, it's just the Americans trying to have this, like, global power while not cleaning up their own country doesn't represent, doesn't, doesn't take into account the reality of the situation that, like, they've also, the IOC and WADA has resisted athlete power and athlete leadership in anti-doping rules. And so they're, they're kind of, it's this, where they, they, they would love to just have control over the American professional sports because that would also eliminate the athlete power and athlete voice that those sports have. So what has, what are the next steps? What has to happen on behalf of this Rodchenkov act in order for it to pass? I mean, what's, what are the barriers? Yeah. So it's interestingly, I mean, rare in Congress these days is it's gotten full bipartisan support to the point where we were able to pass it in the House of Representatives on voice vote, uh, which means that you can't have any objectors. So it passed unanimously in the House. That's just recent. You were, that was pending last time we talked. No, uh, it, oh, it's okay. still pending in the Senate. So this okay. happened all okay. of last year, fall of 2019. Okay. Yep. Um, then it came out of uh, so the next step was it has, to, it has to, of course, pass both houses of Congress and then be signed by the president to become law. So it's out of the House. Um, it came it came through committee in the Senate. So it came out of the committee uh, just a couple of months ago. So the next and final step essentially is to get it passed by the full Senate. And then it would go to the president for his signature. And the vice president's office has indicated that the president will sign it. Um, it's a fairly non-objectionable bill. It's uh, it's passing with bipartisan veto-proof support. It's just, it's not a bill that's going to be vetoed by the president. So getting it through the Senate is the final step. 
it has to happen this year because the the current Congress ends in you know January first of this year, and if it doesn't pass before then, then the fact that it's passed the House and all of that goes away. You, you go back to the beginning. You got to go back to the beginning. Yeah. So we think that there's a, a decent chance that we can get this thing through the Senate. The problem is, of course, bandwidth right now in the Senate is, right. you know, there's so much on the table. They're trying to figure out an economic stimulus package, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's, uh, there's nine or 10 co-sponsors of this bill in the Senate from both Republicans and Democrats. Um, there's been a couple of senators that have had a couple of issues with it. We've been working specifically to lobby those uh, to lobby those uh, senators into supporting it, but that's the last step is getting senators to support it. So what anybody, it, what the athlete community, the current push in the athlete community, the, what I'm currently pushing for is to get athletes to call their senators because it has to happen immediately. There's no, no longer time to publish op-eds. We got to get this thing done. Right. So, so calling senators, calling your senator's office, telling them you're an Olympic athlete, telling them what your experience is with international doping, especially in the cross ski world. It's not hard to come by athletes who have had direct experience with doping and with international doping conspiracies. Tell them uh, why this is so important to you, why we need federal law enforcement to counter state-sponsored international doping, and then tell them that you expect them to support this bill and that we need action on it before the end of the year. Mm -hmm. You want to send me the details so I can publish them? I will send you the details. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get a whole bunch of, of like master skiers and amateurs and enthusiasts who are dumb enough to spend like half an hour of their day. It's probably going to be more like 45 minutes of their valuable time listening to us chat about this stuff, but I'm <laughs> sure it'll be a, a massive block of influence. Um, Honestly, it's one of those bills that has no real opposition in this country. It's got international right. opposition, and it's not on most senators' radars. That it, it really just a couple of calls do make a difference on legislation like this. It's not like you know getting a huge health care you right, know right, overhaul right. passed where they're getting thousands of calls a day. Right. They they literally haven't heard this, and if they hear that a couple of constituents, this is important to them. Yeah. But you know they're likely to say, "Oh yeah, like we—that's something that, that we can do. It's bipartisan. It looks good for us. It's going to make a couple constituents happy." There's just no reason not to do it. Sure. Um, so, like, this is unlike most legislation. Individual calls, individual voices do matter. Yeah, it's just grabbing the bandwidth, getting it, getting it through. And as you, I think, as you said, if you can clear the hurdle to get it passed by vice by voice vote, then it's like a you know a couple minutes on a. In a given session. And, and it'll be it'll be packaged in a, the same, you know, hour long block with several other unobjectionable bills. And mm -hmm. it, it's not hard. That's what happened in the House. Right. It's not it's not something that needs a lot of attention. The, the sports community has put a lot of attention. In this. That's why, like the whole sports community has has supported it. Yep. Uh, now we just we just need action. We don't need the senators to understand what exactly this is going to do and why it needs to happen. Right. Cool. Well, that's good. Uh, I want to change gears very briefly. Because you've mentioned a couple of times um, sort of a subject that I find interesting. Uh, in Over time, the anti-doping sentiment in sport has really come down along the lines of like the dopers suck thing and that no penalty is too harsh and that doping athletes should really get the book thrown at them. There should be, you know, mandatory lifetime bans, you name it, all sorts of things like this. 
I was very impressed with you as an athlete when you were asked for comment. It might have been around the Sochi Games or something. Uh, you were asked for comment as an active athlete um, on a, some incidents. I don't even recall what it was. And your response was that you, uh, you would like to see due process on behalf of the accused athletes. Um, I think this is something that you've really always had clear in your mind that due process is the foundation of fairness and, and that sport is no different. Um, and it, it really seems pretty clear that that's not a universal sentiment around doping in sport. Um, and it's easy to make an argument that access to sport is a privilege. It's not a right. We're not talking about human rights issues here. We're talking about, about a privileged community. Um, what is your take on, on individual dopers? Well, and then that, you know, the other, the other thing, that we actually spent a fair amount of time talking about is uh, your friend Carl from uh, Estonia, who was caught as part of that whole thing around world championships um, and how personally uh, you were going to deal with that, with that relationship and, and everything else. Um, is that something you can comment on? How do you, how do you feel about, uh, about, dopers in sport as people as the, you know how do you feel about their role in sport about their access to return about uh the process of generating penalties and and holding people accountable um i think that the individual athlete issue is challenging i think that first and foremost it is a distraction from the much bigger problem of institutional doping yeah I think that, you know, when you're talking about literally thousands of athletes through the Russian system uh, affecting multiple games, 20, 2008, 2010, 2012, 2014, uh, of state-sponsored doping uh, where athletes didn't have a choice on whether they wanted to participate in the system. If they wanted to be athletes, if they wanted to compete at the international level, they were going to be part of this system this corrupt system that was really undermining the integrity of sport across. <laughs> Whip my headphones on my ears. You got excited. <laughs> I got excited. You know, they're undermining sport across sports and across, uh, across Olympics um, in every, it's no different than the institutional corruption that is happening with their election meddling, with their undermining, you know, democratic values worldwide and this is this is in line with that and the decision of an athlete like Carl to go and individually seek out a doctor to help him dope is like an ex you know has, actually has very little in common with the big institutional doping systems um, I, the sports system is actually pretty good at dealing with athletes like Carl as long as there is adequate funding for testing and adequate resources for investigations and adequate independence of the anti-doping regulators like WADA. But as long as those things are happening, the harmonized rules globally are actually pretty good at addressing these issues. What they're not good at and what they're completely failing to address is the big institutional international doping schemes. And I, I, I include things like US Postal's institutional doping in that realm. They're not obviously state sponsored, but they were extremely well funded. They were, uh, you know, involvement of dozens of people in that scheme. 
um, that was institutional doping also. Um, those are very different from the individual athletes who are going out and deciding that they want to dope and trying to figure out ways to, to undermine the system, to skirt the system, to skirt the rules for their own personal gain. I think that the sports system is pretty good at addressing those issues. The one thing I will say also, and I've mentioned this previously, is that we're lacking because there are things like uh, like low-level positives. So we had a there was a UFC athlete who tested positive for porn-sensing drugs, served a 12-month or greater suspension, and came back and tested positive for the exact same drug at a very, very low level. And it was determined that that athlete, that we were, the, the, the sample that was collected, the detection was actually from his use of that substance before his ban, the suspension he had originally used. In the water system, he would have been resuspended for that positive test. Mm -hmm. In the UFC system, which is independent from the water system, low-level positives like that are investigated differently than than high-level positives. And there's uh, things like contamination of water sources, contamination of meat. Those types of things are addressed in an athlete-centric way. And that's what we're missing on the WADA system. And that's what you get when you have real athlete power and athlete representation. So I mentioned earlier that the professional sports in this country, that their anti-doping systems are collectively bargained. As part of the union's position on being you know, there to represent athletes, they provide legal representation for any athlete charged with an anti-doping offense so that there's a real adjudication process. As you mentioned, real due process in figuring out what is the correct course of action, what is the correct uh, punishment for that doping offense. And that's another thing that we're lacking on the world front is real athlete representation, both when it comes to bargaining for the rules and also when it comes to athletes who are involved with an adjudication procedure. Um, so I think that my work to elevate the athlete voice uh, is both trying, you know, the, the, the end result of that is both a harsher stance on institutional doping and a more fair stance on individual doping. But you wouldn't call it leniency. It's, it's, it's really a due process consideration. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, you know, do I, 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 like an athlete like Carl who admitted to, you know, to admitted to doping, admitted to doing so uh, with full knowledge of the situation and what he was doing. You know, he's facing a four-year suspension. He'll almost definitely never come back to racing at the international level. Uh, that's a fair outcome um, for that uh, for that offense. Um, I'm not asking for athletes like that to be to be more lenient. On the other hand, there's an athlete in. Uh, in Britain, a thrower, a track and field thrower, uh, who um, forgot to fill out his whereabouts, traveled home to a different region uh, to visit his parents. His, the anti-doping authorities showed up to his house uh, where he was not because he was traveling visiting his parents. Um, he, uh, in a serious error of judgment, uh, he made the decision to lie about where he was in the email and to ask his girlfriend to uh, 
to, to make the same lie about where he was. And they both sent emails to the anti-doping authorities stating that they were, uh, I don't remember what the lie was, but they were, they were at home, they were just out at the time, um, that they had not traveled. Um, normally a whereabouts filing offense would result in just a warning. You get three whereabouts filing offenses in 12 months before it uh, results in a sanction. Instead, the anti-doping authorities pursued tampering with the anti-doping process because he had lied, and they and that resulted in a four-year suspension from sport, essentially ending his career. Um, no doping offense, no uh, you know, no positive test, just not filling out his whereabouts and then lying about where he was uh, in a serious error of judgment. Can you, can you describe the whereabouts thing? Because you've mentioned it a few times, and I'm not sure people who haven't been in the testing pool exactly know what the requirements imply. Like, you, you, you essentially have to declare in advance where you're going to be. Every day of the year. And Every day of the give, year. Uh, so the, the highest level athlete has to give us one hour window every day between 5 a.m. and 11 p.m., where they're available for testing at a specific location. Most athletes do that either between, you know, five and six in the morning or six and seven in the morning. Um, if they generally sleep in and they're going to be at home or between 10 and 11 at night, if they generally go to bed early and they want, they know they're going to be home at those hours. Mm -hmm. um, but you generally, you have to give a one hour window every day. Um, and you also have to declare where you're going to be in general every day so, and where your normal stops are. So if, you, if you're taking classes every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you would, uh, you would put that on your doping. If, you, if you're always at the gym doing a strength workout Tuesday and Thursdays from 4 to 7 p.m., you would put that down in your whereabouts so that the anti-doping authorities can come find you either in or out of your one-hour window. Yes. Um, so he, that's what he, he failed to update when he traveled home to his parents' house. Um, he lied and you can't update it. it. Like if your change, if your plans change, you're oh, you can update it. I mean, you can update it at any time via text message, via an app, via an email, via a phone sure. call. It, it is extremely easy to update, and you sure. don't have to give any advance notice. You can, if you forget to update, and all of a sudden you're at home in your parents' house, and you realize it, and you're like, literally, if I'm in Colorado at my parents' house, and my whereabouts say I'm supposed to be in Vermont at your house. I can update it. I don't just say like, oh, yesterday I asked, you know, I traveled, I forgot to tell you. Like, you know, you just say like, oh, I'm now in Colorado. And if the tester is two minutes away from your house looking for You're me covered. in Vermont, yeah. I'm still covered. Yeah. Exactly. So it's really uh, a process that is trying to make it as easy as possible for the athletes. Um, it is up to the anti-doping authorities to, the burden is on the anti-doping authorities to track you down as long as you're not grossly negligent in updating your paradigms. Mm -hmm. And they actually are able to and do use things like social media to track you down as well okay. um, as an athlete. Um, but Mark Dry was, yeah, was, they pursued a four-year ban. And um, interestingly, because he's a national level athlete and not an international level, level athlete, he actually has fewer options for appeal. He can't appeal internationally, uh, which means that he, right. he's basically sitting with this sanction, this four-year sanction that's going to be career-ending for him um, because of this, this huge mistake he made in lying about his whereabouts, um, which is just simply not a just outcome to what happened. Sure. Um, and my problem with that case is, is not that any necessarily – that any rules weren't, weren't followed. I actually think that UCAD, UK anti-doping, uh, had 
had clean athletes interested hard that they said like we don't tolerate lying um, and uh, and we're going to make an example out of this. But it's not a just outcome for Mark Dry. And what's lacking is this is any sort of representation for Mark Dry. If he wants to pursue any sort of legal remedy to this, which there's actually provisions that he can't sue in regular court over this suspension because his liberty has not been removed. Um, but if he wanted to pursue that avenue anyways, all legal expenses would be out of his own pocket. Uh, there's just no, there's no fair avenue for Mark Dry to pursue justice in this. And that's my problem with the system. Um, and that's an example of an individual athlete who, who needs, uh, who has been just totally harmed by the fact that there's not uh, an, an organization that is specifically uh, in place to have the interest of athletes at heart. Right. So it's, it's, um, it's interesting listening to you talk about this stuff because you, you know, you clearly, it appeals to a really deep seated sense of morality and, uh, part of your personality that I think has always really been prominent. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase the, the question. I kind of actually like when we talked before we started recording, I kind of told you what I was hoping to get out of this a little bit. And I'm now I'm having a hard time saying it. Um, as an athlete, it felt like at times you, uh, the biggest challenge for you was, um, finding some significance in, you know, like, like large scale significance in, in your role as an athlete that, that it seemed like a big challenge for you to rationalize putting so much of your life into something that is fundamentally somewhat frivolous. Um, I've had a lot longer to practice that, you know, to, to rationalize my, my, you know, making a living in sport. And I, I feel like sport has a really important role to play in society. And, um, and that's good. So it, it's been, it's been entertaining to see you get, become so involved in advocacy around athletics, having had so many conversations with you as an athlete, uh, that really made it clear that you were, you know, that you were looking forward to moving past it and had a big agenda, like a lot of stuff on your mind and, and really, we talked about it already, you know, um, issues of equity. Um, so you've kind of been captured by this. I don't know that you went out to find it. Um, is it engaging you? I mean, is it like clearly you're interested? Is it, uh, is it rewarding in a way you didn't expect or, um, and what is it, what does it do to your feelings about the relevance of sport in society? Does it give you any, any different perspective on sport? Yeah, I think that it has, it has really demanded that I do figure out, like, why do I, what do I view as sports place in society and why is that important to be in the bigger, in the bigger picture where, you know, you have, uh, you have people dying of hunger in this world and you have people getting, you know, black people on the street getting killed by police. Uh, why does sport matter, especially sports that are, full of primarily uh, affluent white people. Mm -hmm. And I have been, I have, as you mentioned, surprised, I've been surprised personally 
with how engaging this work has been and how much I see it as tying into the bigger issues that I'm really passionate about. So I believe that like, you know, I, I, in the big picture, I view the IOC and the international federations as these super governmental organizations that are not accountable to any one entity. They're not accountable to any one government because they operate you know, so internationally and they're, and they're that, you know, they're, they're so dispersed in terms of their, uh, what kind of accountability they have to government and to national laws. They're certainly not accountable to athletes, uh, as the system currently stands because athletes have no collective voice. Uh, and they're not really, unfortunately, the sponsors and the funders of the entire Olympic movement have not held the IOC or WADA or the IFs responsible uh, for their actions, for human rights, for uh, for creating a just system of sport. Um, and I think that that type of abuse that the athletes see, uh, and that is financial abuse, that is sexual abuse, as we've seen way too many times uh, in this country and internationally, uh, that is abuse in not giving athletes uh, their rights to freedom of speech. That is abuse in uh, not letting athletes pursue their own individual sponsorships. Um, that type of abuse comes from the fact that there's no accountability to the powers, the powers that be, if you will. But these organizations that are essentially completely powerful over every every athlete that is in their system um, because there's no because there's no avenue to hold them accountable and and I think that that's completely in line with the lack of labor rights that we have in this country and especially now that so much of this country is returning to gig work especially as the economy turns south I think gig work is going to become even more prevalent and just like after the 2008 2009 financial crisis we're going to see companies trying to cut their labor costs, uh, and to do so, they're going to go to more, you know, contract labor and, and labor that they're not, yeah, that they're not responsible for the health care and for pension benefits of their employees anymore. Um, and that, so I, I see like the advantage that's being taken of athletes as just completely in line with the advantage that's being taken of every kind of powerless worker uh, in this country. And, and so I, I don't know how much, I don't know where, we've talked about this before, and I don't, I don't have a clear vision for like what my life after college looks like, but I think that labor rights and, and labor economics are an area that I definitely will stay committed to. And I view this work in, ad, in athlete advocacy as like completely in line with that work and setting me up for exactly what I want to do in the future, whether it continues to be in athletics or uh, in, a, in a different field. I mean, what, one more example on that and something that's been really influential on me is the, the founder of the Major League Baseball Players Association, or the founding president, um, who the players elected after they formed a union in the 1950s, uh, came over from the Steelworkers of America. Um, and had experience, had no experience at all in sport or in sports equity, um, and brought a union mentality. And we have seen the MLBPA as the most successful sports union in this country. Baseball players are the highest paid athletes in the country. Um, 
the MLBPA has more power than any other sports union in this country. And that was a lot, all thanks to the way that it was founded and the values uh, that were placed on the athlete power and athlete rights in baseball. And that through line of unionization of workers to unionization of athletes has really been my guiding principle in this work uh, for athlete advocacy. So it seems like the subject kind of leads naturally into the question of the platform that athletes are afforded, um, particularly when they become prominent. Um, and this has been all over the news, not, not only in Olympic sports, but in, you know, us professional sports, um, around, you know, the, you know, the kneeling for the anthem or, you know, the raised fist on the podium, um, and the, the real outcry over the use of, of that platform, uh, for, you know, for athlete voice or for, or specifically for protest and, and whether that's appropriate or not, I suspect you might have opinions on that. Um, what's, uh, what's your take? Yeah, so I've had the opportunity to work extensively with the USOPC's Athletes Committee, who, as I mentioned, has been like really. Uh, Wait, so this is actually a third gig. This is like you've got the you've got the USADA education piece. You've got the the global athlete piece. This is the USOPC Athlete Committee. Yes, to be clear, I'm not on that committee. Those are elected members uh, okay. who represent each sport in this country. Um, I have the opportunity to work with them as kind of a consultant or an advisor on specific issues, especially specific issues relating to areas of anti-doping because that's where my knowledge base has, be has been centered. Mm -hmm. But uh, also because I'm very passionate about I would say that I, my, my consulting role with them is really centered on all global issues at this point because my work in sports has really centered around global issues. Mm -hmm. um, that's thanks to the work with Global Athlete. And so, um, so I'm able to work with the USOPC AAC Athlete Advisory Council um, on their global issues. And that's where my work on this Rule 50, which is what you're referencing, uh, comes into play. Um, so I, I feel this is actually probably the one area that I'm most fired up about right now because I view it as just a fundamental human rights issue and I view it as an issue where there is very little ambiguity. The IOC is on the wrong side of history at the moment and that is something that we're fighting to change. Um, you know, I think that in, in the work for WADA independence and in the work for uh, for the, the rule 40, which is the athlete marketing rule. Um, there's a little bit more gray area, a little bit more argument for, uh, for, for some semblance of, of keeping, keeping some of the current structure. But in rule 50, I think that the global sports governance is just on the wrong side of history. They're, they're just- So what's rule 50? So rule 50 is uh, the anti-protest rule for the IOC. And it's this idea that the Olympic games and uh, the Paralympic, the International Paralympic Committee has a similar rule in place, but the, the Olympic Games um, are a apolitical space, um, which just has no basis in reality. The IOC is it, the IOC has an observing seat at the UN. The IOC is intricately involved with governments 
who host the Olympic Games. Governments who host the Olympic Games are essentially funding the Olympic Games in their country. Uh, this idea that the IOC is apolitical is ludicrous. Hmm. But their idea is that the, the Olympic Games are apolitical and there's no place for political protest in the Olympic Village, on the field of play, on the podium, or in any other Olympic space. Athletes can have their voice, according to the IOC, in press conferences when they're speaking for themselves. They can have their voice on their own social media channels, but that they're, they cannot uh, take part in political movements uh, in any other way during the Olympic Games. And so this includes uh, Olympic podium protests, like the famous photo of John Carlos and Tommy Smith raising their fists in support of black lives, in support of the Black Panthers uh, in the Olympic Games. And what's crazy is that, so that, the IOC clarified the, back in January, the IOC clarified Rule 50, that it does include podium protests or gestures, including raising your fist or kneeling. Um, and that they are, they've essentially upped the ante and threatened uh, significant penalties, like including removal from the Olympic Games for athletes and stripping medals for athletes who engage in protest activity. Um, so at the same time, John Carlos and Tommy Smith and that, that action on the podium raising their fists is included in the Olympic Museum. It's heralded as those athletes standing up for Olympic values. And yet if an athlete if an athlete did that same gesture today, they'd be removed from the Olympic Games and have potentially have their medals stripped. Two athletes at the two American athletes at the Pan Am Games last year uh, engaged in gestures. One kneeled during the anthem and the other raised their fist on the podium. And both were placed on probation by the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee uh, for those actions in line with the IOC rules. Um, so these are athletes that are, that are standing up for what they believe in. They're exercising their universal right, which is outlined in the UN Declaration of Human Rights, to freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Uh, and they're being, they're being punished with no process to adjudicate the disputes, etc. Um, the IOC claims that they are detracting from the other athletes' podium moments who are on the podium. Um, this despite the fact that the, the third athlete during the John Carlos and Tommy Smith protest, uh, who was on the podium with them, actually chose to wear the same, uh, it was either a pin or an armband, uh, in support of what the other two athletes were doing. Um, there's also the yeah, IOC. I read a fascinating was, article about that where they actually, like, he was part of the plan. I like part of the plan, yeah. yeah. Um, there's the IOC also claims that this opened the door, opens the door to hate speech, um, despite the fact that hate speech is not protected speech and hate speech falls under a different category. But they claimed that you could get an anti Semitic protester. Uh, protesting next to a Black Lives Matter protester and that the whole thing would become this circus of protests um, without understanding the, the protesting that's happening that athletes are doing, athletes would much rather focus on their athletic achievements and celebrate their victories, but that these protests are happening because there's real pain and real uh, suppression and, and 
real problems in the system that they believe are more important than just celebrating their athletic achievement. Um, and the IOC, in my opinion, but and in the opinion of many, many athletes uh, that I've been involved with, just simply does not have the right to take away an athlete's human right. What about the, the argument that uh, essentially it's all a, a stage show and functionally the athletes are like, uh, like employees, you know, like, yeah, it's reasonable for a, for an employer to demand a certain conduct when, when an athlete is on the job and that these athletes are being, um, insubordinate, if you will, to the, uh, the greater objective of the, of the movement and the organization. Yeah, that's trying to tee one up for you here. Like I think right. there's, but I, considering how much the IRC has resisted any calls for, for compensating athletes for their time and competing at the Olympic games or compensating athletes for the revenue, you know, giving athletes a share of the revenue that is brought in by their performances. The idea that the IRC would, you know, would have the same type, same type of oversight over athletes that an employer has over an employee is laughable. Okay, so let's look at let's look at U.S. professional sports then, because there, the athletes are very well compensated by television contracts and sponsors and 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 the league itself and the teams. So, what do you do with uh, athlete protests there? Particularly, I mean, so um, what I saw I saw something popped up on a social media feed this morning for me, suggesting that um, that the NBA and NFL seasons, what which what seasons are starting? I don't even know. But this, some of these pro sports seasons are actually taking a big ratings hit since they have really opened up um, and endorsed the the protest movement. Right. So this is where the idea of collective bargaining and athletes being able to bargain with administrators or the in the case of professional sports, the owners of the team for their rights and their compensation and the ability to protest is part of that bargaining as is anti-doping as is general compensation uh-huh. um, as is how many days can be demanded of the athletes time in training camp and in games and how many games are played in the season all of that is subject to collective bargaining as it should be in every industry so if walmart is going to uh, mandate that workers you know cannot uh put a political pin on their outfit that says they support black lives uh that should be subject to union bargaining and they you know there might be some give and take and workers might say okay that's fine uh we'll accept that if walmart um you know gives a million dollars a year to the black lives matter movement and puts the black lives matter uh on every storefront in the country or something like that. I mean, this should be collectively bargaining. Workers and athletes should have power in this process, as they do in the in the professional leagues. If the if the ratings take such a huge hit in the professional leagues that the revenue is down, and then the revenue sharing agreement that exists between the players and the management, then both parties are going to lose. Then they might rethink their stance on this type of political action. Uh, but that's that's when both parties have a vested stake in the outcome. Right. And both parties have power in the outcome, which is just so far from reality in Olympic sport that it's not even comparable. Right. Good. 
Good. I'm glad you addressed that. <laughs> Can you tell that I'm passionate about these topics? No, it's great. I mean, th that's what I wanted was to get you a little bit fired up. That was, like I said, I was teeing it up. <laughs> um, yeah. What else did we push for? We pushed for Rule 40. We for quickly, Rule 40 is the, I mentioned this earlier, but it's the, the uh, the Olympic, the IOC rule that says that athletes cannot uh, promote any sponsor who's not an IOC sponsor during the Olympic Games. Right. Um, and that those sponsors cannot run marketing campaigns with their athletes that, that state that the athletes in the Olympics, that celebrate an athlete's gold medal, um, anything uh, during the Olympic Games. Basically, any company that does not support the Olympic, the IOC as a whole and the Olympic movement as a whole cannot profit from an athlete's success, even if that country supports that athlete in their path to the Olympic Games or funds that athlete. And athletes cannot profit off of the Olympic image. Only the IOC as a whole can do this. And the IOC's stance on this is this model of Olympic solidarity, this idea that they're going to centralize all of the funding and that the Olympic movement as a whole is significantly more valuable if there's not a plethora of sponsors competing that if if there's only one sponsor in each category so for instance visa is the primary card holder at the olympic games only visa cards are accepted the olympic games and the mastercard cannot sponsor individual athletes and uh use some of the value of those athletes competing at the olympic games for their own profit cannot pay individual athletes and that by consolidating the finances and that power under the ioc umbrella the IOC is then able to redistribute those funds globally, which ensures that uh, athletes from countries that are uh, lower socioeconomic status, um, from athletes uh, that have less, fewer opportunities can be financially supported by the IOC uh, to get to the Olympic Games. The problem is that that model has failed and broken down and that the IOC that the, the, the people who are actually profiting from this entire system are sports administrators. And they're sports administrators at the IOC level, sports administrators at the International Federation level, which is organizations like FIS and uh, the IAAF, which is now World Athletics, um, the inter organizations such as FIFA, um, and then at national organizations, um, it, you know, national Olympic committees like the USOPC uh, or national federations like the like U.S. ski and snowboard, etc. Those are the people who are actually profiting, who are actually making a living off of this funding model. Yeah. Almost none of the funds uh, in, an, in a study that we did at Global Athlete, we found that significantly less than 10% of the funds in the Olympic movement actually makes it down to the athlete level. Huh. Uh, and so... So um, what we're talking about is like the entire sponsorship package, television package, everything of the Olympic Games... Mm -hmm. And everything surrounding it, all, you know, Paralympics, Pan Am Games, all of like all the of whole it. package. Yep. Less than ten percent of the of that revenue ends up with athletes. Correct. So uh, we are, uh, you know, fighting to change that model, and the Olympic Solidarity model is broken. Uh, and it, 
is time to be reimagined and it needs to be reimagined with equal representation and equal say from athletes when athletes are standing on an unequal footing. And the only way that can happen is if there is professional unionization of athletes, meaning that not only are athletes unionized and under an umbrella organization that has power to bargain on their behalf, but also that that organization has professional staff who, who are operating uh, and able to fight for athletes uh, in, a, in a professional manner. So, you know, athletes threatening to boycott the games is not good enough because they're fighting against this system that has professional businessmen and businesswomen who are who are running this organization and who are who who are focused on profit. Um, athletes need professional staff uh, under a professional union. So, does Global Athlete envision itself as an organization filling that role, or are they simply advocating for the development of such a organization? So the, the, the current vision, and, and Global Athlete is, you know, still, even though we're a year and a half old now, is still in its infancy and trying to figure out what our role is. I think that what we've come to realize is that uh, a global union that encompasses every athlete the world over across all sports is both, uh, is, is impossible. It's impractical. Um, there's too many athletes. There's too many issues. Um, there's too many viewpoints. Um, we were, so we were toying with whether the correct model was, uh, was supporting professional union, union organizations uh, in each country. But the model that we've, we've landed on is that it has to be a union organization in each sport, a global one. Because you have to be able to fight against the, the international federations and the IOC, and you have to do it on a sport-by-sport -sport basis. So uh, we're super excited that last week uh, a new organization launched called the Athletics uh, Association, um, which is an organization of track and field athletes, a professional union of track and field athletes uh, that is focused on international athlete rights. Um, that is the model. So Global Athlete was really involved in supporting that group, getting it off the ground. We are uh, we're trying to help them with funding their professional staff. We're trying to help them in any way that we can. Uh, and and that's the model that we want to see across Olympic sports is international sports-specific unions and global athlete can be a collective of those unions and we want to support those unions wherever we can. But we are not going to be the central union for, for every Olympic athlete. It's just impossible. Right, right. So I would love to see a professional athlete union in ski and snowboard. And it probably would match the international federations, meaning that a union in ski and snowboard would cover all the same sports that FIS does. Um, mm -hmm. So it would essentially be, you know, there is a FIS, FIS athlete council that has no professional staff, certainly, and, and no independence from FIS. It would be a group like that, though, that actually was had, that was independent and had, had the finances and resources and power to right. actually help shape sports governance in ski and snowboard. It's a big vision. It seems it, it, it's. <laughs> I'm impressed that it's happening in athletics. I I wasn't aware of that. That's it's a huge project. It's a huge project. We're lucky that we you know, right now our funding is uh, based on a couple of 
a couple of donors who are really invested in what we're doing and invested in the change that we're seeking mm-hmm. um, so, that, so that we have the financial resources to help support these organizations because that's a huge until eventually you would get to a, a model where where athletes are funding their own organizations um, which is how it works of course in the professional leagues and, and in most unions um, mm-hmm. in fact it's illegal in this country for administrators or for uh, for companies to fund their own union because that's not independent. Right. Um, and so we, eventually we would be moving towards that model in sport as well, but you have to have some seed, seed money. You have to be able to right. get off the ground and when we're lucky to have some financial support. What does buy-in look like internationally on this athletics model? Right. I mean, is it, is it universal or are, all, are athletes from all nations uh, essentially bought into the organization? Yeah, so they launched with uh, something like a 30-member or just shy of 30-member board that represents uh, all six continents and every discipline in track and field. Um, so I, I think that it is, uh, it is probably heavy on the athletes who come from countries where unions are more prevalent. So it's, it's heavy on, on American and Canadian athletes and on European athletes, uh, but they have representation from all over the world. And uh, I think that that's, uh, so that's great to see. And I think that like outreach to athletes who come from countries where, where unions are not prevalent and where there's a lot of skepticism of, of, organized opposition to kind of entrenched power uh, is part of the challenge in this process. And that's one way where the professional leagues in this country have it much easier is that all of the, even though you do have athletes from all over the world, all of the athletes are competing in this country or in in major league baseball and in hockey in this country and Canada, but both have democratic systems of government where where organization and, and kind of collective voices is normal. So last question I have, I guess, and it's kind of uh, a side point altogether. Um, with, with the COVID situation and the viability of organized sports really being challenging, um, we have to, we have to ask the question, what, you know, what role sport has and whether it's important enough to last through a challenge, a global challenge like this. Do you have a, a perspective on, on that? Yeah. So um, I've thought about this a lot. My, and this is just an opinion. Uh, this is not necessarily informed by, by any sort of, uh, you know, deeper thought or reading I've done, but uh, as the world moves towards more automation and towards a more sedative, and this is you know, kind of a trend in global technology over the last you know, many decades, uh, as, as the need for work becomes less important in terms of this, like the planet and the human race feeding itself <laughs> uh, and kind of taking care of both basic necessities, I actually see sport as becoming more and more important in society. Um, I think that sport fills the role uh, of both um, encouraging people to be active and living healthy lifestyles. It it fills the role of uh, 
of entertainment and uh, of purpose, of goal setting. I think there are so many lessons of sport that are that are that society is going to need to replicate as it moves forward in a more automated world. Um, I also think that as the inequities of capitalism become more and more apparent that we're going to stop idolizing. I hope at least that we're going to stop idolizing the world's richest people. And we're going to stop idolizing uh, people who um, have kind of found their fame through family wealth or through any sort of uh, activity that really harms others. And I think that athletes in that, so I, so I, you know, I would love to see us moving away from this idolization of Elon Musk and moving away from an idolization of the Kardashians, people who I don't think represent the best of humanity. And I think that in this process, I think that athletes continue, athletes kind of endure the test of time and, and actually can prove to be really valuable role models in society. Um, and people that are worthy to look up to, especially as we also give athletes more power and ability to use their voice. I think that that society is going to definitely like the role of uh, the role of idols and heroes in society is not going away. I think we need to change who it is that we're idolizing and and making our heroines. And so I think that athletes can play that role in a bigger and bigger way. And so that that's like looking well beyond COVID. That's kind of a, long-term big picture look and but i i do believe that that's those are part of the reasons why sport can endure this uh endure this current global crisis i think that also you know that's why i think that it was so important that the olympic games get canceled immediately when it became apparent the scope of this crisis and that and that sport is leading the way in societal responsibility for how we protect public health and not trying to come back uh, too quickly for the sake of financial resources uh, at the expense of public health, because I think that sport needs to be a leader in society uh, if its relevance is going to maintain long term. So it's an interesting thing because, and this is, you know, I think we face this in skiing with, with, you know, elite athletes training really hard and, facing the increasing probability that they're training for a season that might not include races. Um, and I, you know, I find myself increasingly focused on the fact that, you know, the, the skiing is about 99.5% process and preparation and, you know, less than 1% racing and removing that less than 1% of the sport, um, leaves 99.5% intact, but it all comes apart unless skiers from the top down embrace a somewhat aspirational role to reinforce the significance, the social significance of sport and remind us all of why they should be supported. Um, do you think athletes need uh, help? Is there a toolbox for athletes to become better aspirational citizens um, and, 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 and take on that mantle of of you know being the idols particularly in sports well, <laughs> where they get paid a ton and everyone's just looking at the rich folks anyway 
Right. I mean, I, I feel like a broken record here, but again, I think that like collective voice is, is the answer. I think that if there's professional support, who's, you know, whose sole focus is on the well-being of athletes, then that would give the athletes a platform to speak collectively because I told, I fully believe in like, if you will, like the selfishness of athletes that people talk about all the time that I fully believe that if you want to be the best in the world at whatever you're doing, you have to be selfish. You have to be really uh, conscious of how you're using your time and not over committing yourself. And you can't spend, you know, all the hours that I do reading up on current sport administration and leadership. Um, this is not the job of current athletes. Uh, so athletes, yeah, athletes can speak up, but if they, if athletes had more built-in support and more built-in power, they wouldn't have to take away from their training to be these global leaders. That would happen by virtue of the fact that, that they have the built-in platform and that people expect that of them. Um, so I, you know, I want to continue to see the best athletes in the world give everything they can at doing their sport because I... Like I still find athletes inspiring and I still love watching people, you know, I, I still love watching the best gymnasts in the world go out and perform their floor routine. And I still love watching Michael Phelps go out and break, you know, six world records or five world records and, and win eight Olympic gold medals. I, 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 get, I mean, I'm like, you, you know, I'm like a pretty sappy person and I get chills watching that kind of thing. Uh, and that's not where, why I think sport is so valuable, but I do think that if we don't have people pursuing their dreams and, and focusing entirely on being the best in the world, that, that you'll lose something from sport. So I, I, I think that there is a place for individual athletes to speak up more where they feel really passionate. I think there's also ways that individual athletes should seek out help. You know, I, this is why I've, really tried to connect with these athletes who want to support the Rodchenkov Act. I'll use Jesse as an example again. You know, Jesse doesn't have time to research the act. She doesn't have time to go and, uh, and look up the text of the bill and to write the, you know, write what it actually, you know, what part of the bill is actually going to do what in the global anti-doping scheme. But she does believe that something has got to change in the global anti-doping system and the institutional doping is a problem. So when I go to her and I say, Jesse, like th this is a solution to this problem that you know exists. And I would love to help you uh, use your platform to support this issue. And the way that we ended up doing it was that uh, I wrote the structure of an op-ed and Jesse filled in the details with the things that were important to her. And we both signed it and, and we were able to publish under both of our names and it had the power of Jesse with the level of nuance and detail that I'm able to bring to it. And it's extremely effective and it's not asking for more than, you know, an hour of Jesse's time. Uh, when I know that she's got training and racing to focus on and yet it's extremely powerful statement. And that's, I think where, how athletes can be effective, but they need support. Yeah. Someone's got to play the role that you took in that instance. Yeah. Well, Noah, I really appreciate your time. I think uh, we've probably got four times as much material as anyone's going to sit still and <laughs> watch. But, it, you know, I'm glad at least we got to explore the conversation we started last week just a little bit. And um, as always, it's, it's uh, fun to catch up.
Yeah, and I'll say lastly that like, I, you know, in doing all this global, and I mentioned this to you last week, in doing all this global work, it has left me feeling a little disconnected from the ski community, which is like where I started and still like where so many people that I call friends and that I love are. And I like, I appreciate you, you know, using your platform to help me like reconnect with the ski world. But also like, I think that it's super important for me to not like, forget that my career was centered in this specific world and it, it really is a great and supportive community it's a it's a good group of people it's a nice it's a nice world to work in yeah we'll see if the nice. bike world is just as what's that <laughs> you can cut this part out but i said we'll see if the bike world is just as important for you yeah <laughs> i guess uh right. cool that was good yeah good i'm gonna hit stop thanks for listening 